0: The days of denial are over, and the question is, can we act quickly enough so that we don't get past that tipping point where there's not much we can do? So there's a real sense of urgency, I think, certainly among
1: Vermonters and among many of my colleagues. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Vermont's new junior senator, Peter Welch, spent last week touring his flooded state and assuring residents who had suffered losses that help was on the way. Welch has a lot of practice with this. First elected to Congress in 2006, he experienced Vermont's first so-called 100-year flood following Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. In Irene's aftermath, he fought with FEMA to enable Vermont to rebuild roads and bridges to withstand the new realities of climate change, instead of being forced to replace the shattered infrastructure with the same inadequate design and materials. After 16 years serving as Vermont's lone representative to the U.S. House, Peter Welch was elected senator in November 2022, replacing former Senator Patrick Leahy, who retired after serving for nearly a half-century. Welch returned to Washington on Tuesday to give his debut speech on the Senate floor. In that speech, he outlined his two top priorities, stating, Our challenge is strengthening our democracy and improving the living standards for everyday Americans. If we don't do both, we won't do either. In a wide-ranging conversation with Senator Welch, we discussed his visit to flood-stricken parts of Vermont, the fragile state of democracy, and the surprising common ground that the progressive Vermont Democrat has found with far-right Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Senator Peter Welch, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you. It's great to be with you, David.
1: I know you've been all around the state this week looking at the aftermath of the floods. What are some of the scenes that struck you most this week? Well, several. You know, one of business and that uh, in
0: in many homes, uh, Barry was really really uh, smashed. Um, you had the businesses down uh, downtown, but then being in the homes, uh, very modest homes, but very well kept. Uh, really representing life savings of folks. Um, it was a man who lived in his home for thirty years. And he said this was way, way worse than Irene. It uh, went down in his basement. There was still a couple of feet of water in there. The streets were filled with mud. Uh, the mold was starting to come in. And uh, you just see just the power of, of of this flood that changes and upends your life um, of that of that man where he raised his family. Suddenly, uh, I think, when Barry also, we went to a mobile home park and a woman was coming out of her mobile home and came towards us. And it, there was a field of mud about uh, 200 feet between, uh, her mobile home and us. And she walked and each step. She took, uh, she sunk six inches into the mud and she was carrying, um, a little plastic pail with some toys that her child had. And, uh, scenes like this, um, uh, were just powerful, and we saw them everywhere. Uh, it, 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 down in Waterbury, at uh, 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 one of the businesses there, Prohibition. Uh, uh,
1: Prohibition it, pig, yeah.
0: Prohibition pig. Uh, he he paid thirty three thousand dollars a year for flood insurance, and basically was told that he does he's not covered. Uh, and just think about what that means as you're trying to think about your future uh, and everything that you've worked on so hard and so long, uh, you, you've uh, you've lost. And the other thing, I met a couple of uh, um, grandparents who were raising their grandchildren and they had a home uh, and this was in Johnson and that street got flooded, it, it, it was four feet of water into the first floor. And as upset as these folks were, obviously, that they lost their home, their primary concern was providing stability quickly for their grandchildren, who, as I say, they're raising. And just think about the courage of grandparents, and you're seeing this happen many times now, where they've taken on uh, the responsibility of raising kids again. And uh, What these folks were concerned about was the stability that they knew these kids needed much more than they were concerned about the loss they had suffered. So there's a a, just an overwhelming sense uh, of how powerful an effect this has on people uh, in, in their lives. You know, it's just not just the material things, but a home is where. Uh, you have some safety and you have some stability and you raise your kids and suddenly this is taken away and uh, it's not at all clear how you're going to get from losing that home or losing that business to getting back on your feet again. Um, It's really inspiring, obviously, uh, in every community, how folks came out and were helping, helping uh, shovel mud, uh, helping move the debris, uh doing everything and that moment to be helpful but at the end of the day uh the folks who lost their home or they lost their business they're the, they're really going to have big challenge and they know it so these were vivid scenes in ludlow in londonderry in waterbury in johnson Uh, in Weston, uh, just all across the state. So it's just really, really a powerful impact on people. And we've all got our work to do to try to help out those of us who were lucky. Unfortunately, that was most Vermonters that didn't, you know, their homes are intact. Their businesses are intact. We've all got to do what we can to be helpful to our neighbors who weren't so fortunate.
1: I heard that story you told, you know, with the owner of uh, the building that houses Prohibition Pig you know paying tens of thousands in insurance for years I have heard this story now as I've been reporting throughout this week in Barrie and Waterbury and homeowners almost everyone says that uh, they will get no help from their insurance that they have been dutifully paying for years what can be done what what help is there for people who come to find out that this giant loophole in their insurance is floods.
0: Well, you know, it's something we're going to have to talk about at the state. And I think uh, uh, the reality is that the your insurance contract is whatever is in the terms of the contract. But what gets pretty frustrating, understandably, like for this business owner, he's paying what he thinks is flood insurance, uh, $33,000 a year. And I think it's reasonable for people to expect that if they essentially get flooded out and they have flood insurance, then there's not loopholes in there that are going to stop them from getting what they thought they were paying for. So there's some question here about whether the banking insurance regulations have to be modified so that you uh, get what you think you're paying for. But what we can do in that I think, number one, we're going to have to gather the stars. We're going to have to see what the patterns are. Uh, we may have to try to see if we can get some volunteer lawyers to represent people. But the insurance itself is a contract between the homeowner, or the business owner, and the insurance company. So it's not as though there's a quick legislative remedy. So I think there may be some legal disputes here, and, and it may well be that we can get some volunteer lawyers to help out folks who uh, really are entitled to some coverage that uh, may be uh, not not improperly denied. Uh, Well, you know, what the state can do and what the federal government can do, uh, Senator Sanders and Congresswoman Ballant and I obviously are going to be pushing for the federal aid that is necessary uh, for folks to get back on their feet for businesses uh, and also to repair our infrastructure.
1: I want to ask about that I have a a vivid memory how after Hurricane uh, after you know Tropical Storm Irene hit and then Hurricane Sandy hits New York uh, of Senator Leahy um, shouting in the well of the Senate floor demanding that fellow senators particularly Republican senators were threatening to block aid to Vermont at that time, uh, for some reason, and I don't recall what it was, but um, I I don't have many images of Senator Leahy shouting like that, but he was furious um, that this was perhaps going to be uh, held up in some political game. Do you anticipate any problems uh, that some of your colleagues might throw in the way of Vermont getting assistance?
0: I sure hope not. And by the reaction from my colleagues in the Senate, they have been universally supportive. In so many, one of the first people to approach me was Senator Kennedy from Louisiana. And Louisiana certainly has had more than its share of catastrophes. Uh, with the incredible flooding down in the New in, in on the Mississippi, so one senator after another, Republicans I'm talking about, have approached me, um, Senator Sanders, and said they'll they'll help. And you know, we in Vermont have always supported disaster assistance for Louisiana, for uh, New Yorkers after Sandy. So we're now at a moment where we need it. I think the situation is somewhat different than uh, it was during Irene because there was a real push uh, on a faction among on the Republican side against any kind of spending at all, including on emergency relief. And we had a real battle in the House. Uh, Ultimately, we were successful And then Senator Leahy had a big battle here in the Senate. Uh, so there's always the, the politics here in the spending, and we've seen with the Freedom Caucus folks in the House, they're against spending money on anything. Uh, uh, it, it, so we'll have we'll have some of a cha- We'll have something of a challenge, but I have confidence that at the end of the day, we're going to be successful. Uh,
1: is it, is it, Let I me wish- ask about uh, Irene. I know that one of the battles that you were very involved in after Irene was with FEMA to uh, FEMA at that time would only pay to replace exactly what was destroyed. So an inadequate undersized culvert would ha- would be all that they would provide funding for and you and Senator Leahy and Senator Sanders had to go to the mat to uh, essentially get FEMA to change its approach so that Vermont could innovate and replace what was destroyed with properly sized bridges and culverts and essentially prepare for a climate changed world and you were successful with that and it was a as i recall a new precedent with fema i'm wondering what you saw as you toured the state have been the results of those efforts uh, from irene uh,
0: that was absolutely essential to the well-being of vermont uh in, in in surviving the storm. Now I say that with great sadness for the folks uh where their homes got flooded, their business got flooded. Downtown Montpelier was inundated. But the rea- but the the, the 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 steps that were taken to build back better, that's really what it was. Uh, doing differently uh how we were uh, repairing bridges. Uh, how we were changing culverts to accommodate the likelihood of another big storm. That has made a huge difference uh, in how much damage we avoided. Uh, we had a lot of damage, but that was extremely helpful. And that was the big argument. FEMA would if you had a you had an eight inch culvert, you get an eight inch culvert to replace it. Um, and even though it, you needed a uh, 24 inch culvert, and building back better at that time, with improving it, was seen as sort of cheating on the relief. You were you were using the 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 the, uh, the disaster as an excuse to get uh, a better outcome. That was the resistance to it. But the fact is, with what we're seeing now with climate change, the systems that we had in place are inadequate to the moment. And it's not just this storm; these storms are going to continue to come so uh you know the one vivid memory i had is when uh after the storm i i was in norwich and i wanted to go over to rutland that's just a 50 mile drive straight across route four route four was wiped out the only way i could get there was by going up to burlington and coming down route seven and that was a challenge and then had to take a four-wheel drive uh sort of a national guard vehicle to get across route four it was completely wiped out that's not the case this time. So the decision that we were able to uh, um, have FEMA make to let us improve and harden so that we had more resilience has made a huge difference uh, in diminishing the damage that otherwise we would have had.
1: What have you learned uh about disaster recovery, about how to utilize the resources, uh, the federal resources that you're you have access to. What did you learn from Irene that you can apply now?
0: The importance of coordination. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Governor Scott leading the effort, of course, in Vermont, um, and they've got some experience, folks who were still in government from the time that Irene was there uh acting as quickly as you possibly can and on infrastructure improvements that's where uh you can act pretty quickly and what we have in vermont is a number of contractors who've worked with the state over the years they kind of put aside what they're doing uh, to respond to the immediate urgency of repairs that have to be made immediately and that's happening right away so coordination and cooperation is really important but the second thing is uh it, it, it the, the the challenge for the, the a person who lost his or her home or family lost a home or for uh a business that's really tougher because they've got a long-term challenge to get back on their feet and that's been aggravated of course with uh, in the case of losing where you're living uh the real housing shortage that we have here um and the approach that we're going to take again that we did last time is that Bernie, Patrick, or pardon me, Bernie and and, uh, uh, and I and Congresswoman Ballant, Becca, we're going to coordinate uh, the casework to try to help people navigate what the bureaucratic requirements are, because it gets very, very frustrating for people and for businesses when they think there's some aid and there's paperwork they've got to do when they're not getting a quick turnaround in an answer to their question. So and what we're expecting is that we'll coordinate together, uh, but also with the governor, uh, to start navigating what the various federal programs are and to try to give as good attentive of service uh, to each Vermonter that we can.
1: What does that mean you're going to coordinate the response? Is this going to be kind of a one-stop shop for Vermonters looking for federal aid, or how do they access this coordinated response? Well, let's, response? See,
0: let, let, let's say uh, David Goodman has a question, and you've got 15 neighbors, then the, the, I might get called, or Bernie might get called, or Becca might get called, but our staffs will coordinate so, that one of us is working on your case, another of us is working on your neighbor's case. So, that it's not a lot of times when people call the congressional delegation, they might call all three of us and we might be working on the same thing as opposed to really uh, taking assigned responsibility for one case. And Bernie does another case and Becca does another. The other thing is there may be what we're trying to look at is uh, the farm part. Maybe one of us will do that. Some of the housing issues, maybe one of us will do that. So this is something we've got to organize so that we can be maximum, have maximum efficiency on behalf of Vermonters.
1: Talk about the impacts that you've seen on farms this week. You are on the Senate Ag Committee. Um, What can be done to aid these farmers? Many of them, some of them have lost their crops for the year.
0: You know, the bottom line here, uh, the farmers that got flooded. I mean, there was a great, uh, the, the farm in Johnson, uh, uh, the the owner of that farm was uh, on, on uh, in Vermont Public. And I hadn't visited her family farm, but I heard her. And her crop is probably wiped out. And, um, and th- those folks are going to need some financial aid and not loans. I mean, this is one of the questions that I've been discussing with Bernie and Becca. Uh, So a lot of the aid that can be made available is in the form of of, uh, loans. But if you're uh, on a tight budget already and you've now suffered this huge loss, uh, frankly, you're gonna need grants like we did during COVID. You know, Businesses uh, that were able to survive another day when they were closed down as a result of the public health emergency with COVID. Uh, did get some grants, and it really made a difference in how, uh, A, those businesses did and how our communities came back. So this is going to be a challenge for us, because I do think that uh, if there are businesses that are on the edge, including our farms, uh, borrowing more money is not a real uh, help to them, since that means they never get out of debt. Uh, so that'll be an area where we may have to look to try to get a supplemental appropriation uh, to to be practical in how we address the uh, sustainability of these, far- these farms and businesses that have been hammered.
1: You now, in, in your time as a congressperson, have gone, seen your state go through two so-called hundred-year floods in the course of 12 years. Um Talk about the role of climate change in this disaster.
0: You know, David, this is all about climate change. And the debate about climate change when I first came to Congress about 17 years ago, there was a lot of people denying that it existed. That that is over. There's a lot of people resisting in in Congress. It's astonishing, of course, to me, but there's a lot of people resisting, acknowledging Uh, that we have to act and act quickly to address climate change. And I think that does not reflect denial. I think it reflects desperation to try to hang on to whatever fossil fuel interests that uh, some of my colleagues represent. Uh, And it also, I think, reflects a a fear about making the transition from a carbon-based economy to a clean energy economy, because it is disruptive. But it's just so clear to everybody with you know the fires right now raging in Canada and the toxic air that we're now breathing in Vermont and in Washington right today. Air quality is very bad in Washington. It's very bad uh, in Vermont from those fires. Uh, the heat that we're seeing in the Southwest, where people are passing out, we're, we're having in Phoenix, they're going to have several weeks uh, where the temperature is over 110 degrees, and that's throughout the southwest. Um, The fact that this storm that we had in Vermont, it's not even a tropical storm. We had a name for what happened in 2011. It was Irene. This was a rainstorm, and the reason that so much rain fell was because the warm ocean produced warmer air above it that then came and settled over Vermont. And when you have a rainstorm uh, that passes through moisture-laden air that has has so much more moisture because of the warm ocean, then a two-inch storm might become a five-inch or a seven-inch or nine-inch storm. So everyone's experiencing it you know, all across the country. We're experiencing it by breathing the bad air from the raging wildfires in uh, Canada, the heat in the south, uh, the excessive moisture uh, right here in Vermont. So, you know, the days of denial are over. And the question is, can we act quickly enough so that we don't get past that tipping point where there's not much we can do. So there's a real sense of urgency, I think, certainly among Vermonters and among many of my colleagues.
1: The the New York Times uh, had a story this week, um, you know, picking up on your point that climate denial uh, has, has largely, um, it's no longer in vogue, but it's taken a new form, climate delay, and the Times reported, quote, All 50 Republicans in the Senate have been opposed to decisive action to confront planetary warming close quote Um, This is happening even as their own states are baking under record heat Um, and you know for those of us out here uh, in in the sticks it's Incredible that at this moment when you have senators whose own states are suffering the effects of climate change that we're unable to make progress i'm wondering do you find any openings now i mean the time saying all 50 senators uh you know delaying or blocking doing anything where's the opportunity that you find to do something
0: you know i do have some uh, uh, some optimism here i mean that's tempered with how urgent of a crisis that we're in, you know, and we're just vividly experiencing it with this catastrophic flooding in Vermont. But David, the Inflation Reduction Act, it was the first time that a governmental policy with money addressed climate change. It's like $500 billion in many initiatives that provide incentives to try to stand up more electrification uh, in our vehicles. Uh, more insulation and more uh, efficiency in our appliances and in our homes. And what's happened as a result of that is the marketplace is responding. So there's been billions and billions of dollars invested by the private market uh, in clean energy type initiatives that, you know, the market is responding as a result, I think, of governmental policy that's provided incentives. So, you know, even in Waterbury, for instance, Core Power, they're doing these batteries that are obviously an essential element of being able to have power produced by clean energy, wind or solar, available when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. So, I think you're seeing the market and governmental policy be aligned. And the resistors now have a much more forceful uh advocacy uh, uh burden uh uh that, that they're facing a much more i think uh empowered public and private industry that is actually pursuing clean energy policies so that is good uh, but the resistance i think reflects the significant power of the fossil fuel industry uh, they've got a lot of assets as they see it of like oil in the ground that they want to continue exploiting. Uh, so, delay is their preferred option. And then you have the challenge that there is disruption when you have to make that transition. You know, the coal miners in, in Pennsylvania or in West Virginia that I visited, um, how are they going to uh, make that transition? And part of our effort to get to clean energy has to include a real commitment to be helpful to the working folks. Uh, whose jobs may be affected.
1: Senator Welch, you have gone from one of the most, senior-most members of the House of Representatives to the junior-most member of the U.S. Senate. What has changed for you and how does this affect your ability to get things done and and deliver services?
0: Well, I'm really happy to be in the Senate. Yeah, I, I love serving in the House um, in both jobs, you have an opportunity to be helpful to be helpful to Vermonters. Uh, but with the decision by Senator Leahy, who served us so well for so long to leave, I really did believe that the best opportunity that I had to serve Vermont was by running for the Senate. and it's it, it's, I think it's, I'm really liking the opportunity I have. The Senate it's two things. Number one, the smaller size of the Senate, uh, really means that the personal relationships important in the House are really vital here. And if you have energy and you work well with uh, your colleagues, you have an opportunity to make an impact in the Senate uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and i give an example. I just passed legislation through the Commerce Committee and, and passed in the Senate. Uh, on the opioid crisis on a bill with Senator Cruz of Texas. So, you know, he and I don't see eye to eye on just about anything. But if you find a colleague that you agree with uh, on an issue, you can move it. It's different now than in the House. The House is a different place than when I first went there. It's really dominated, as you know, by the really right wing freedom caucus. And the arguments tend to be uh, very ideological and then just a radical Uh, willingness on the part of folks over there, even to shut down government. So, uh, you know, I've been talking with uh, Congresswoman Ballant, who's doing a really good uh, job, but the House is a tough place with the uh, Republican majority now. So uh, I am uh, seeing the Senate as a place where if we can get some bipartisan legislation over to the House... Uh, we may be able to even get the, the Speaker McCarthy to, to sign up on, on some of these items like the Welch-Cruise bill.
1: So that name, the Welch-Cruise bill, you know, I had in mind one of the things I wanted to ask you is if Senator Cruz is really as unlikable as he's made out to be on Saturday Night Live and the many other places where he's, he's kind of uh, mocked. Um, <laughs> How did you end up choosing Senator Cruz as your partner
0: well you know he chose me I it was a this was a bill that's dealing with this new uh uh opiate it, it's an it's an animal tranquilizer a, a, a trunk a xylazine and it's showing up in in uh, uh in opioids uh, in in Vermont and in fact uh, vermonters have been telling me about it and it's showing up in some of the, as you know we've had a record number of deaths um, so it was something that, uh, was on my radar and was also Senator Cruz's and he was putting together a bill. I was very interested in, and he contacted me. So, you know, it, it, it's an indication that, uh, he needed a Democrat and, and he reached out to me and saw me as somebody who uh, could be helpful in getting that done and something that was good for Vermont and good for Texas. So he did it. Uh, and the smallness of the Senate, I think, allows for these kind of interactions and, and cooperative arrangements to try to get something done. There's a big ideological divide in some of the major things that require major action. You know, Senator Cruz and I are never going to agree on uh, climate change issues, but uh, particular things, if you can make progress. I think it's good not only because if it's a good piece of legislation, let's get it done but i think it is in working together you create some trust that then is really essential to making this process work where you may be able to work on bigger issues that'll have more of a lasting impact for all of uh, all of america
1: democrats have traditionally struggled in rural america and this is going to be a key voter group in 2024 um vermont has been an outlier in this regard uh, you know judging from its congressional delegation which has been solidly democratic for many years what is your message to democrats about how to win in rural america
0: well i think there's two things first of all we've got to acknowledge that living top down economic policies that we've seen for the past 40 years To some extent, even including during Democrats, uh, Democratic administrations, where there was too much deference paid to Wall Street and too little deference to Main Street, that has left working families behind. You know, working uh, working Americans, middle-class Americans have been treading water for 40 years economically. They really haven't had any kind of significant raise, even as the costs have gone up. And, you know, you're seeing that even in Vermont, where... The cost of housing, the cost of childcare, Uh, if you get sick or you have a family member who's sick and you you can't uh, be home to take care, these are really tough things uh, for families. The cost of education. And we've got to have, I think, a focus on the everyday needs that families have to provide them with some economic security uh, and opportunity. And I think what's helped us in Vermont is that we've maintained a really strong democracy. Our town meeting tradition, our citizen legislature, the participation and engagement in Vermont, I think has meant that folks have a seat at the table. And as we work through some of these economic challenges, there's some mutual respect and a desire to try to have outcomes that are beneficial uh, uh, for all of us. Um, and what I'm seeing nationally is there is a breakdown in democracy. I mean, we obviously, January 6th uh, is the vivid example of what has happened. And I'm seeing also that the Supreme Court has become, in my view, an anti-democratic institution. You know, this, the court does have the authority to review legislation and decide on constitutionality. But what this court has done is really started to intrude in the legislative uh, powers of the Article One branch of government. And that's, of course, his Congress. Uh, when they do decisions like uh, declare unconstitutional a uh, gun safety law passed by the state of New York about concealed carried weapons, coming up with some bizarre uh, originalist theory that you have to look at this law from the perspective of what it would have been uh, in 1790. I mean, it's just a, 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 it's just kind of a bootstrap approach to uh, making a judicial decision. So I think we've got to revive our democracy. I think that means we've got to assert legislative authority. Uh, uh, I think we've got to really protect the access to voting. Uh, and I think that we've got to have uh, economic policies to start strengthening working class and middle class Americans, because ultimately that's what allows folks to have a sense of community. If they have a place where they can be and be secure, make enough money, they have a little left over at the end of the month, and they have some latitude to be able to help one another to get uh, through day to day living.
1: As you point out, the Supreme Court is now, you know, upending decades of precedent and decisions made uh, in Congress. What do you think can or should be done about the Supreme Court? Do you support expanding the court or some of the other measures that have been uh, term limits, things like that?
0: Well, there's two things. Number one, there should be ethical standards in the court. It's really quite shocking that you have now uh, re- reports about justices taking lavish uh, private plane travel, lavish vacations, uh, yachting trips. I mean, it's just astonishing. In the only We've got over 800 federal judges. Every, every single one of them uh, is obligated to report uh, what any gifts are that they give yet except for nine. Those are on the Supreme Court. So start with ethics. And my view is that the Chief Justice Roberts should undertake the responsibility of applying ethics to the nine people serving on the Supreme Court. But second, I favor term limits. You know, you've got a situation now where it's lifetime tenure. Uh, the Republicans have essentially, uh, with the Leonard Leo and the billionaires, who really have been so generous to folks like uh, Justice Thomas, uh, through the Federalist Society that they basically fund, they've vetted folks who are pretty ideologically uh, extreme before, if, if, if for those folks to be nominated to sit on the Supreme Court. They're young. And uh, and the life expectancy obviously is much longer than it was when our two hundred years ago when our country uh, was founded. So I think we should have eighteen-year term limits on the Supreme Court, and it would mean that every president would be in a position to nominate two people to serve on the Supreme Court. And why that's important is that it means that the American people would be weighing in when they elected the president. It reflected what their orientation was because there really is a political dimension to who gets appointed. They reflect a the point of view, and what's happened uh, by recently is that uh, the court, in my view, has become very, very tilted and ideologically rigid, and uh, and has started legislating, not just making deciding on cases. So term limits is my favorite approach.
1: What would it take to get term limits passed? Do you think it's possible?
0: I don't think it's possible in the current Congress, uh, but I think it's really necessary for the well-being of our constitutional order. But with the Republican House, uh, there's no way that that would pass. And with the divided Senate, you know, it's on a knife edge, 5149. It's unlikely that we would be able to pass it. But it's, I think, the right... Uh, focus on what we should advocate for. And ultimately, the American people are going to have a big part of the decision by who they elect. And one of the the factors that folks can take into account when they're voting for U.S. senators or members of Congress or president is their position on
1: uh, Supreme Court reform. Hmm. In the aftermath of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, abortion is now banned or severely restricted in roughly half the state's what can be done what will you do to expand abortion access in this environment
0: well i've voted in congress even before the dobbs decision to basically uh, codify roe v wade and the right of a woman to be the person who makes a decision about uh reproduction and i continue to support that i think it's really really essential uh to uh, provide that protection uh we were successful last term in the house in passing that we got it through the house but it didn't get through the senate i continue to advocate for that in view of what the supreme court did with i think what was a catastrophic and outrageous decision in dobbs so the legislative remedy takes a majority uh in the house and in the senate as you know current house that won't happen uh, but I think again, that's where the American people are, you know, this issue is going to be something uh that they can weigh in on by who they send here to Congress. But uh short of that, each state obviously is stepping up in Vermont uh is is you know we're all proud of the fact that, uh, that in Vermont we we did uh pass that constitu- that amendment uh that had widespread support, including the governors. So Congress, we can, Continue to pursue le- legislative protection of a woman's right to choose. And then that also can be done on a state by state basis. But obviously, it's really terrible. You know, as much pride as we have in Vermont that we're c- protecting a woman's right to choose, I talk to women in Vermont and they don't think that the rights of woman, uh, women should be determined by the zip code they live in. That's the right a woman has no matter where she lives
1: are your colleagues i mean they're you know we know that polls nationally um are very lopsidedly in favor of you know people supporting women's right to choose or or at least not supporting these extreme abortion bans that are being passed in so many states do you see anything among your republican colleagues where that sentiment that they're concerned that these extreme bans are going to cost them elections.
0: There is concern. You know, the Republicans are split, but the MAGA Republicans, um, and this is a, continues to be an issue they fight on, and they're all in favor of these abortion bans. But there's a there's a split among Republicans. Uh, and And uh, you're seeing that, especially in in there are cons- they have to make their own decisions about how they're going to run their campaigns. But what I've seen is a real change in the Republican Party. There's a lot of folks I've worked with here, Republicans, uh, that are tremendous to work with uh, and uh, uh, in uh, in our pro-choice. Uh, but there's, you know, the trump wing of the of the party is not. And in the House, that's the ascendant um, wing of the party. Uh, you know, there's a real division in our country uh, that's reflected in Congress.
1: There's a, an, an unusual story going on in the Senate right now, and that is the situation with Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, where numerous reports have you know, demonstrated that she is tr- greatly diminished. Her health is very impaired. And, uh, you know, do you think that in that situation that Senator Feinstein should step down and make way for a younger person to be appointed by Governor Newsom?
0: Well, the the good news here is that Senator Feinstein is back. I mean, we had really had a crisis where um, I served with her on the Judiciary Committee. And as you know, there's 11 Democrats and 10 Republicans. So absent Senator Feinstein, we were not able... Uh, to vote on judicial uh, 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 appointments. And that's a crucial function that the the Judiciary Committee has. So Senator Feinstein is back and we're operating. So I think that's really mitigated the issue. Uh, And, you know, the the reality is that uh, this is her decision about uh, when and whether uh, but the good news from the Senate functioning standpoint is that she is here. She is at the Judiciary Committee, and she has been present and voting.
1: Another kind of hot political question that's been uh, in the air is the question of whether President Biden should run for re-election. Uh, there seem, you know, his uh, his popularity, the polling seems to have taken a real dip, and there's real concern about him running for re-election and making him the oldest presidential candidate in history. What do you think President Biden should do?
0: You know, it's a fair question for voters to consider and President Biden has acknowledged that the age issue is one uh, that is a fair uh, question for, uh, for folks and that he's got to address it. Uh, what you're seeing with President Biden, frankly, um, is that uh, the age issue aside, he has been successful with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the COVID response, uh, with his bottom-up, middle-out uh, economic approach. So a lot of the policies that he's pursued and have been passed uh, uh, are popular. And uh, so he's got a real political case about his reelection. And that's why I think you didn't see a challenge uh, to President Biden from a perspective of other candidates. Uh, so... Uh, so that's that's where we're at. You know, he's in the race. Uh, he's got the age question that he's got to address. Uh, but he does have the support of Democrats. And I think he's going to be successful in his reelection effort. You
1: you traveled to Israel earlier this year, and you were very critical of the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. Um Biden has now invited Netanyahu to d c this week. Do you agree with that decision? There's
0: absolutely no reason for the President not to engage uh, with the leader of Israel. Uh, what and I expect uh, and certainly hope, that in this visit, President Biden is going to convey, as he has done already, his very, very serious concern about policies of the Netanyahu government. I mean, there are people in that government who are totally opposed to the two-state solution and having an independent Palestinian state. That has been the policy of the United States government and and supposedly Israel uh, for years. That's becoming a fiction. So the engagement that the president will have I expect and certainly hope that he's going to be very explicit that the U.S. is serious about the two-state solution and that the steps that the Netanyahu government is taking towards annexation, uh, towards bulldozing down homes, uh, 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 towards uh, uh, improving more and more settlements that make a two-state solution ever more impossible, that the president will convey that. So the visit is fine with me. But what's the content of the discussion? And my hope is that the president will be very, very clear uh, that he opposes uh, 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 the, the efforts that the Netanyahu government has taken essentially towards annexation of the West Bank.
1: Well, opinions are one thing, but do you think he should condition aid to Israel on Israel's human rights performance?
0: Uh, that that's, that topic is now emerging. I mean, we we have had a very solid relationship with Israel, but there has been a implicit rejection. It actually is becoming more explicit of the two state solution. So the U.S. I think always is, is has got to assess uh, what is going on in terms of uh, uh, the the Israeli government's position on the two-state solution. So that topic is starting to emerge.
1: You've been, uh, you know, y- you were an eyewitness to the attack, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, uh, more than an eyewitness. You, you were in the gallery uh, fearing for your life. And you've been on this program, you know, recounting that harrowing experience. Uh, and throughout the campaign, you spoke about your concern about the fate of democracy and whether we would have a democracy. Um, what is your feeling now, from your vantage point in the Senate? Um, are you are your concerns changed in any way?
0: They have not changed. It's a jump ball. I mean, the, the January sixth was, of course, the most vivid manifestation of the erosion of democratic norms. You had a violent attack on the Capitol with the explicit purpose of overturning uh, the election of the President of the United States. That was the goal. And it was planned, and it was executed, and uh, people died as a result of that. But you're seeing many of uh, the candidates running for uh, the Senate and for Congress, and of course, uh, Trump running again for president, who were in denial about the outcome of that last election or peddling uh, the election was stolen lie, uh, stolen. They're continuing to do that. So, this is where it's so critical that citizens be engaged uh, to help r- revive and strengthen our democracy. And the reason I think it's so important for our democracy to work is that's the tool that we use to address the challenges that Americans face. And we have the challenge of income inequality, and that is what has been the cause of the stagnation of wages for middle and working class Americans. And we've got to address that. But it's also the tool we're gonna use to deal with very contentious, but urgent problems like climate change. You know, there is disruption when you go from a fossil fuel economy that we've had for hundreds of years to a clean energy economy. But we've got to work through that in order to survive and make the planet uh, survive. And the democratic process allows folks who are affected to be at the table, but it has to be built on trust, mutual respect, uh, and a genuine effort to try to make things work for the benefit uh, of all, or mostly all, so I just see that the combination of democracy as a tool to help us be effective to address our economic challenges, and I think now the urgent environmental crisis that we face uh, is essential. But it's a jump ball. It's really, you know, you're seeing you're seeing uh, the candidacies of so many uh, Trump-aligned folks who are still in denial about what. January 6th was all about
1: okay well Senator Peter Welch I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont conversation
0: thanks David really appreciate it
1: Peter Welch is the junior senator from Vermont